Well, good morning. It's nice to be back. Many of you know that I just got back from sabbatical, and it was a refreshing month where I spent time studying God's Word, read some books in the must-read pile, and just dived into a lot of topics, a lot of topics that we're dealing with as a church. So it was such a blessing. But also, the sabbatical provided some time, some quality and quantity time spend with the family, which was much needed as well. As we had the privilege of traveling to the mountains of North Carolina, to the lakes of Michigan, where we experienced many unforgettable moments as a family. So to that, I thank you. But when we started the trip, Silas, our three-year-old, asked me if there was anything in the lakes of Michigan that eats humans. Yes, he, he definitely is a Florida boy through and through. But on another occasion in Michigan, we went fishing with my father. So here we are ready to catch some perch, some walleye, some bluegill, some sunfish, and we're going to clean them and cook them and eat them that night. And we had my three-year-old and five-year-old on this boat as well. Well, seven hours later, we had not gotten one fish. We had gotten one bite the whole time in seven hours. So it was time to wrap things up and go out to dinner since we didn't catch dinner. So Luke, our five-year-old, he was a little bored. I mean, seven hours. A little bored. So he decided he was going to catch himself something. So he caught himself a leech. And of course, the leech latched onto him. And to my horror, I was a little horrified because this was a big leech. It was a giant leech. And yet Luke, my son, was cool as a cucumber. He didn't act like it bothered him at all. It wasn't an issue. You can see here in the picture coming up, you can see on his finger the size of this leech. You can also see that my son is quite content with the leech latched onto his finger. No worries, no cares, no fear, just pure joy. He said to me, to give you a clue of why he wasn't scared, Look, Daddy, the leech likes me. He's sticking on my finger. I think I have a new friend. At that moment, I thought to myself, if he only knew what was really going on, and if he only knew the truth, he wouldn't be so calm, so happy, if he knew what the leech was really doing. As we say, sometimes ignorance is bliss, amen? But that was his perspective. Though it was naive and sweet, it was the wrong perspective. The leech didn't like him. It liked his blood. I wonder about our perspectives this morning. As my son had a wrong view, a false opinion about leeches, what about us? Do we live our lives with wrong views, wrong foundations that we believe in? Do we have the ability to discern from right and wrong in a culture that continues to rebel and turn its back on God? What do we use as our standard for discerning correctly? I will say this unashamedly at the family church. Our standard is the word of God and the word of God alone. 
Everything else is subjective to a lost and dying world that is obsessed with what it feels rather than what is real, true, and right. Well, this morning we're going to go back to our series in the Gospel of John. And specifically, we'll be in John 3, verses 3 through 10, and then we'll jump to verse 16 through 18. So you can open your Bibles to John 3, where we'll be this morning. And we're going to find out and look at what it looks like to be born again. What does rebirth in Christ look like? So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We give you all the glory, Father, recognizing we are nothing without you. We thank you for your love, your grace that we've sang about this morning. The grace that we experience every day, recognizing how patient you are with us, Father. Help us to be zealous for glorifying you. Help us to be zealous for the lost, for those who don't know you, Father. Help us to love them so they can experience the same love and grace that we experience every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the scene starts in John 3 when Nicodemus, a religious teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus. And it seems that Nicodemus is curious about Jesus. He probably is wanting to know who Jesus really is. Is he the Messiah? Is he a prophet? Or is he just a good man? But instead, they begin to discuss how one is saved, the new birth process instead. Let's pick it up in John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I've said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? So Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus clarifies and says, one has to be born of water and of spirit. Which again, Nicodemus is baffled. So Jesus tells Nicodemus that one has to be born of the Holy Spirit. In other words... A person's heart has to be transformed by the Holy Spirit so they can actually become a child of God. Nicodemus is still like, what in the world are you talking about? Jesus' response may seem a little harsh. In verse 10 he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Jesus seems shocked that Nicodemus didn't understand how to person 
becomes born again, how a person comes to faith in Christ. But we have to remember, Nicodemus was a teacher, an expert of the Old Testament, the scriptures, and yet he didn't understand how someone comes to saving faith. The question I ask you this morning is, how is it possible that Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was talking about? Nicodemus, who spent his life learning and teaching the scriptures, he would be compared to a modern-day theologian, yet he does not have any idea how one becomes a child of God? Wouldn't you think someone who supposedly knows the Bible would not miss such an important doctrine, an important point like how salvation occurs, how salvation actually happens? But it seems to me the very thing Jesus is talking about, being born again, is exactly what needed to happen to Nicodemus himself in his own life. See, at this point, Nicodemus wasn't following Christ yet. He wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus was a religious authority who was spiritually blind himself. He was leading others why he himself couldn't see beyond the physical world. Nicodemus studied, read, memorized the Bible, and without the Holy Spirit transforming his heart and mind, he could not understand the basics, the foundational doctrines, elements like salvation. It's interesting because Jesus didn't say, believe in me or follow me. No, Jesus talks to him like a theologian. Jesus tells him the inner workings of what has to happen on the inside. We get to see what has to happen below the surface for someone to actually come to faith in Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 6. Jesus says to Nicodemus, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus gives Nicodemus a little lesson on genetics. Likes produce likes. A dog can only produce another dog. Similarly, humans can only produce or give birth to humans. Flesh produces flesh. Similarly, the Holy Spirit produces those who have the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who quickens us, who regenerates us, who causes us to be born again, amen? Which leads to point number one. The Holy Spirit transforms the heart of those who trust in Christ. Point number one says, the Holy Spirit transforms the heart of those who trust in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we turn to Christ in belief and repentance, we become new creations in Christ. We go from being born once naturally, physically, to a spiritual birth, the second birth, which is a supernatural birth wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. I asked us this morning, if we are born again, 
Have we turned to Christ in faith and repentance? Have we committed our life to Christ, recognizing he is the only Lord and Savior? Amen? And this is just not mere mental assent, but a work of the Holy Spirit. We submit our will to God as we begin to recognize our sinfulness. We begin to have newfound desires to please God instead of self. We become thankful. We praise God for his love and mercy, his grace that cleansed us from all unrighteousness, all our sinfulness. Let me ask us, are we a child of God this morning? Has the Holy Spirit changed you, regenerated you from the inside out like we just sang about? The next question is, who is drawn by the Holy Spirit? Who is drawn by the Holy Spirit? Some might conclude that the Holy Spirit draws the good people of the world, right? Those who already are seeking after God. Those who want to follow God, right? Well, actually that contradicts scripture, right? Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We see here that no one is good. No one seeks after God in the flesh. That's what it says. There aren't people looking for God who are still in the flesh. All have gone their own way, it says. All here means all. And it says they have all together become worthless. That means there aren't seekers out there. Those that are searching for God outside of those who only, the only ones that are seeking after God are those that are already being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, how is someone drawn by God? Well, let's look back at John 3, verse 8. John 3, verse 8 says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes. We don't see it, but we can feel it. And then he says that's similar to how the Holy Spirit works. Jesus' point here is that the Holy Spirit works mysteriously, perfectly as God. And moves those who are going to actually be children of God. So we see it does not depend on how good man is because we've learned humanity altogether is wicked. Flesh produces flesh, but the spirit again produces the spirit. So we rest in the fact that the Holy Spirit moves as he sees fit in the lives and hearts of humanity. Ephesians 1.5 gives us a little more understanding on how the Holy Spirit moves. Paul says this in Ephesians 1.5. He, that is God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Scripture says that God predestines and adopts us not because of who we are or what we do, but because of his own purpose and Will, it says. What makes this so astounding 
is that God chooses us even while we are still living in rebellion against God, still wicked going our own way. Let me ask us this morning, if we all start out evil, if we all start out living in rebellion against God, why does God save anyone? What was his motivation behind saving sinful people like us? Well, let's jump down to John 3.16. John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I know this is review, but we see here that John tells us the why behind salvation, the reason God saves anyone, which leads to point number two. God's love transforms rebels into saints. God's love transforms rebels into saints. God was motivated from a heart of love. Think about that for a minute. God pursued us because he loved us. God, who spoke the world in existence, who is all-powerful, God, who has all knowledge, loved us at our very worst. Some of us may be thinking, well, you know, I wasn't really that bad. I mean, I wasn't, like, killing anybody. I mean, I, I, I may have been disobedient to my parents, or maybe I lied a few times, thought some wrong thoughts, but overall I wasn't like as bad as you're trying to paint me like a wicked sinner. Well, let's listen to who, how wicked we really were in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and, and this is what it says here. Paul gives us the truth about who we were. He says, scripture says this, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were children of Satan to now children of God. Instead of being under the wrath of God, we are now under the grace of God. We went from being controlled by the flesh to being now controlled by the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we look at salvation like that, that we were living in rebellion, that we were evil, following Satan, and God rescued us from our darkness because of his great love for us. So we can't take credit for our salvation. We can't get puffed up in pride, thinking we're better than those that aren't saved. Not only were we as wicked as those who still are lost, but it took the work of the Holy Spirit to save us. God had to pull us out of our own depravity and open our eyes to him. Salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. God has poured his grace on us. Why? Because of his great love for us. It wasn't because God needed us or that God was lonely so he decided to save us. That would be saying that God's motives were self-centered. God's love is pure and right. God loves us with a holy and perfect love. What love has been poured out on us this morning? What is even more astonishing, if you think about this, what should really blow our minds is that God's love for the world takes priority, supersedes over his love for his son at the point of the cross. God's love here was a conscious choice, a decision. It wasn't a warm, fuzzy feeling in the pit of his stomach. God was not wooed by humanity. The world mistreated, abused, abandoned, and finally killed Christ. And yet, God the Father sacrifices what is most precious to him to save us. Do we know such love? Have we experienced such love in Christ Jesus? Are we walking in the love of God? How well are we living a life of love towards others? Let's go back to our main passages, and we're in John 3. And we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. John 3, verses 17 and 18. And it continues by saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we see here that Christ's primary purpose was to save the world. Amen? Verse 18 says, though, that those who don't know Christ are already condemned. They are already lost. They are already headed for destruction. And that was all of us. So what should our response be when all around us people are dying and going to hell? How should we respond to that? Well, turn to Colossians 4. Verses 5 and 6. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. This is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Colossae. And he says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of, of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul tells the church at Colossae that they should be ready to share their hope in Christ, be ready to give a reason for the faith in Christ, be ready to explain why the Bible is God's word, be ready to share Christ with all humility to anyone who asks you. That leads to point number three. Believers live for Christ in words and actions to a lost world. Believers live for Christ in words and actions to a lost world. 
If we're passionate for Christ, we will love people. If we love Christ, we will love people. If we are passionate for Christ, then we will be passionate about evangelism because we love people, right? And I must confess that often I'm not evangelizing the way I should either, which means I am not loving God or others the way I am called to either. So some of us are in this boat together. So what should we do about this? Should we just start evangelizing? Well, yeah. But Scripture says that we must confess our sin and repent for our sin because we want our heart changed. We don't want to just change our actions, but we want God to change our hearts. Ask God to change us. Beg God to change our hearts to love others the way he loves us. That's what we're supposed to do. But I would also encourage us to meditate on the love of God. Read scripture and look for God's love, his kindness, his compassion, his grace that he continues to pour out on us. And then pray that God would give us a love for others like he has given to us. Amen? I ask us this morning, are we making the most of every opportunity with the lost? Do we love those who God has placed in our lives? I think we need to just examine our hearts. Do we actually love people? Most of us have relatives, friends, coworkers who don't know the Lord. How are we loving those who are headed for destruction? Well, let's go back to John 3.18. And again, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Let's stop there for a minute. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. This verse should cause us to sing. I mean, I would start singing right now, but it'd be a little embarrassing and awkward for both of us. So I'm not going to do that. But we should really just be in praise. But those of us in Christ are no longer condemned. We are now free in Christ Jesus. We are no longer under the wrath of God, enslaved to sin, controlled by the flesh, going to hell. We are now forgiven of all sin, purified by the blood of Christ, imputed with Christ's righteousness, adopted in the family of God, and we live for eternity now. That is amazing, amen? Romans 8, 14 and 16 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Point number four. In Christ, we are saved, and God becomes our Father. Point number four says, in Christ, we are saved and God becomes our father. I wonder if we think of God as our father. Do we recognize that he cares for us, that he is working for our good? Let me ask us, how great is our love for our own children? How much do we care about them? I was reminded of my depth of love for my children when I was leaving the house yesterday, which was Saturday, to come and work on the message. Joby, who was almost two, 
ran to the door and said, Daddy, Daddy, and just looked at me. And as I got in my car, well, first, before I got to my car, I held them and hugged them and squeezed them and loved on them for about five minutes. But then as I got into my car, he just stood there in front of the door, standing there, looking at me, not understanding why I would leave him. It always rips my heart out when I have to leave when they do that to you, you know? But the question is why? Why does it bother me so much? Why aren't I just like, kid, just let me go? Why aren't I like that? Because of my great love for him, for my children. I ask you, church, how much deeper and pure is God's love for us than our own love for our children? Just the fact that I had to leave my boys reveals that I'm not always there for them. Yet God is always there for us. His love is moment by moment. He doesn't get too busy. He doesn't have too many things to do. He doesn't have to run off to work. He's watching us. He's working. He's helping us. He's transforming us into the likeness of Christ day by day, moment by moment. God's love is so much greater than ours. But often it seems we often forget. Forget it or take it for granted. Some of us are too distracted about the things of the world. Maybe we're consumed with our job. Maybe we have made our families an idol. Or maybe we're addicted to entertainment. Where's my phone, by the way? What's going on today? Oh, yeah, I need to call somebody here. What's happening on Facebook or what TV programs do I need to watch tonight? Oh, yeah, I got all four of them lined up. Yeah, I really don't have time for God. Yeah, my, my days are too busy. I really can't really spend time with him. And then we watch 10 hours of TV. We all have selective ADHD. I understand that. Amen. Yet, God, our Father, is always drawing us back to him just as we want to help our children. So God is loving and patiently encouraging us. But he doesn't just stop at encouraging us. He loves us so much that he will discipline us. He will spank us if we need it. Amen? For our good and his glory. That's why he does it. Well, in conclusion... Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can a man be born again? How can a man be born again? How can someone born of the flesh be born of the spirit? It's impossible, right? It, it defies logic. It breaks the rules of science. Yet God does what he pleases. God works miracles every day. And the greatest miracle of all is bringing dead people back to life by the power of his spirit. Amen? turning a sinner into saint, opening the eyes of the blind, forgiving the wicked, finding freedom from the bondage of sin, being cleared of all past, present, and future sin. Grace deletes it all, being deemed pure, right, holy, because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, adopted, predestined, Holy Spirit-filled, transformed, becoming new creations, now a child of God, child of the Most High, heirs to the throne, and all the blessings that comes with that. That is what it means to be born again, brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be saved, to be redeemed, to be forever changed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen?
God is our Father, and we can rest in His sovereignty. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. Thank you that you let us come here as a church body and praise you and glorify you. May everything we do here at the family church do just that. But not just our church, all the churches, Father, that are walking in your word. We ask that we all become more like your son and that we become more holy and that we lift up you all the more so people can truly see you clearly and see themselves as well. That we can be in awe of your grace and still be brokenhearted over our sin and confess and repent daily for the things that we do but still just be in awe of your grace that you pour out on us. Help us to be those type of people. Help us to be a church like that. In Christ's name, amen.